and welcome to another broadcast of Sunshine USA here on Spotify and some of the other platforms uh, we're broadcasting on here at Sunshine USA. It is a great joy to have you tuned in on this beautiful, sunny <laughs> Thursday morning. What a difference a day makes. Uh, yesterday, when I was recording this program, it was raining outside and cloudy and gloomy and... <laughs> but today it's a bright, clear, sunny day, and just praising the Lord for it. But, you know, I hope the weather's good where you are. Hopefully it is, but really any weather is good weather to be reading and studying the Word of God in. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the high cost of discipleship, the high cost of following Jesus. Now, you know, it's easy to become a Christian. To become a Christian, all we have to do is pray and ask Jesus Christ to come into our heart and forgive our sins, give us a new life, and he does. It's easy to become a Christian. But, and this is a big but, it is very costly to be a Christian. It's very hard to be a Christian. It is not easy to be a Christian. And basically, that's what we're going to be talking about on the program today. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, starting with verse 25. And we're literally going to pick up today where we left off yesterday. Yesterday, we left off with uh, verse number 24. And today we come to verse 25. It says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. That's in verse 25. Now I want you to get the picture here. Jesus is very popular, even though this is the final weeks of his life on earth. He has enormous, incredible popularity. The great crowds are still following him. <laughs> uh, I guess if they had had rock stars back in those days, Jesus would have been one of them. <laughs> Not a rock star per se, but I mean, he had a popular following. Huge following. Probably the most popular following of anybody of his day. Huge crowds were following him. And I think Jesus saw this as a teachable moment. A moment where he could stop and talk to his followers and his disciples about the very high cost of discipleship. He went out of his way to tell them, look guys, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, let me tell you something, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a bed of roses. You know, sometimes uh, we think that uh, when we got saved, God promised us a bed of roses from there on. That's not taught in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> I mean, we could read about a lot of men of God who had some agonizing moments on this earth because of their faith in God. Amen. Now, you don't hear that being taught in some circles, but you'll hear it taught here. Okay, now, 
verse 26, if any, um, let me get out my glasses here. <laughs> it always helps a little bit. If any man come unto me and hate not his father and his mother and his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus was actually telling his disciples, you've got to hate your family? You gotta hate your mom, your dad, your brother, your sisters. You have to hate them? No, I don't think Jesus is saying that exactly. What he is saying is that your love for me is gonna be so high and so intense that by comparison it's gonna seem like you hate them. But no, he's not telling them to hate. Their family. In fact, you know, we're told in the Word of God, honor your mother and your father. And by the way, that word honor is a financial term. It's an accounting term. That means those of you who have aging parents, guess what? You inherit the responsibility of taking care of your elderly parent or parents. That's just... That's not just something nice you sh should do or you can do if you want to. It's an obligation. The Bible clearly teaches that. To the degree that you're able, you are to help financially your aging mom and dad. That's what the Bible t teaches here. Okay? Now... He says, verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. You see, being a disciple of Christ is all about being a cross-bearer. This thing of being a Christian means you've got to bear your cross seven days a week, 24 hours a day, not just Sunday morning. You know, back in the old days when churches still had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night services, I say that because so many churches regretfully have stopped having Sunday night and Wednesday night services. But um, back when churches were still holding Sunday morning and Sunday night services, you could always tell about the level of love that people had for God. I mean, Sunday morning, basically everybody turned out. You know, and back in the 50s and 60s, I mean, you had no respect in the community whatsoever if you didn't darken the door of a church on Sunday morning. If you wanted society to think well of you, it was your duty and your obligation to go to church on Sunday morning. You needed to be seen in church. And so consequently, back in the 50s and 60s, especially here in the United States, and I suppose it was true in, similar, in a similar way in other countries, people went to church for a lot of the wrong reasons. It was socially popular and acceptable to go to church. 
society didn't think very much of you if you did not go to church. If you were a businessman back in those days, people probably wouldn't support your business or patronize your business if you didn't go to church on Sunday morning. Sunday night, you know, is a different story. Some churches had on Sunday night only about half the people turn out that turned out on Sunday morning. And then, of course, an even smaller crowd on Wednesday night. So you could tell the crowd that came on Wednesday night, boy, I tell you, they were the cream of the crop. But what Jesus is saying here in this verse is, this thing of being a Christian, this thing of being one of my disciples, it's a full-time job. It's not just something you could take care of on Sunday morning. If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to be my disciple 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Amen. Then we come to verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth right down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundations... In my Bible, we have to turn the page here. He says, unless they are not able to finish it, and behold, it began to mock him, saying the man began to build and was not able to finish. That's in verse 30. In other words, he's saying here, If a man's going to build a building, what he has to do is sit down and figure up the cost of building that building, and then he has to see if he has money enough to build it. Now, sad to say, many individuals and churches don't do this. I read one time about a church that uh, felt like they had to have an activity building, also known as a family life center or a gymnasium. Why? Because every other church did. And they felt like if they were going to compete effectively with the other churches, they had to have a family life center. So they go out and they build a family life center. Unfortunately for that church, the pastor who led them to build the family life center left to go to another church shortly after the Family Life Center was completed. And the church was now left with a huge debt, and it would be very difficult for them to pay the debt that they owed on that building. And the truth of the matter is they came very close to being foreclosed on by the bank. Now, fortunately, they were able to sell the church building, which included the new building, and then use the proceeds to pay off the old debt and build a smaller building at another location. So, you could say all's well that ends well. Heard about another story of a church that built 
Likewise, a very similar building that they really didn't have enough money to build, but they decided to build it anyway. And when they got the building finished, it came time for the first payment to be due, and they realized, hey, we're going to have a hard time doing this. And over the next year, they got further and further behind in what they owed the bank. And now the bank was threatening to foreclose. But the bank official, who happened to be a Christian himself, he met with the pastor and deacons of the church. And he says, I'll tell you what. There's only one way this church can avoid being foreclosed on, and of course the bank would take over all of your property. In this case, they would not only take over the new building that was built, but the older buildings as well. He said, there's only one way you can avoid that. You're going to have to authorize the bank to be in charge of your offertory collection from now till the time the debt to the bank is paid off. The pastor, on the other hand, has to sign an agreement saying that he will not look for another place of service until the debt is paid off. And if these conditions are not met, we will foreclose on the church property. Well, now, to make a long story short, they said, okay, we don't like it, but we'll do it. The pastor didn't like it, but he did it. And the bank started being in charge of the collection of the church offering. And uh, it was a sad time. But, you know, it, it was because the leaders of this church didn't really stop and think about whether or not they realistically could afford the building that they were building. And it almost ended up in an embarrassing situation. But fortunately, over time, this plan worked out, the debt was paid off, and now the ch church is free and clear again. But a lot of times, when we don't sit down and count the cost of building or buying, we run into problems. <laughs> it works the same way at the personal level. Some people say, well, you know, I just trust God with my finances. I don't bother setting up a personal budget. You don't get that from the Bible, folks. These verses right here talk about the importance of having a budget, having a plan. Every dollar has a name on it. Plan it. And if you do that, you'll avoid a lot of financial pain and suffering down the road. Amen. Amen. And then we read in verse 31, Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first, and considereth, or consulteth, whether he be able, with ten thousand men, to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? So he's saying here, a world leader would be wise before they commit to war, sit down and think, do we really have the ability to win this war? <laughs> what is our goal? What is our objective? Can we meet this goal or objective? 
a lot of wars could be avoided if we would think about that. I'm sure that when Putin made his decision to invade another country, I'm sure that Putin felt like, boy, this war will be easy as pudding pie. We'll be in and out of there in 30 days and the victory will be ours. Well, more than a year later, the war still drags on. And it has resulted in him being accused of war crimes. And now there is an indictment for his arrest. Now, you know, they say that it's doubtful that he'll ever go to prison. In fact, it's doubtful he'll ever be arrested. And as long as he doesn't travel outside the Soviet Union, he's pretty well protected from being arrested and going to prison. But they say the title of indicted war criminal is basically a title he will bear for the rest of his life. When he dies, that will be part of his epitaph on the tombstone. Here lies a war criminal. <laughs> Here's someone that obviously didn't think about the high cost of invading Ukraine. Now, by the way, that's not a political statement. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not taking sides on that war. I'm just simply saying facts are facts, okay? Now, let's go on. Or else, while the other is a great way off, he sendeth an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. In other words, uh, if you don't have what it takes to fight the war, you might as well try to negotiate terms of peace. And by the way, I'm all for that. Anytime you can have negotiation rather than confrontation, I think that's a great idea. <laughs> you know, a lot of times uh, we think back to the days of the Vietnam War and the Nixon administration, and we think about the man that was then Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, he went back and forth between different countries. It was called detente. And it ended up in the Paris peace talks. Anytime you can have negotiation rather than confrontation, it's always a good thing. Not a bad thing at all. But if you go to war, you better make sure... <laughs> that you have what it takes to successfully fight that war. I like what a former Secretary of Defense of the United States said one time. He said, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. A lot of truth in that statement. Think about it. You go to war not with the army that you would like to have. You go to war with the army you have. But you still need to sit down and think about whether or not you have the ability to fight the war. Now, of course, there's also this matter of having faith in God. You'll remember David, king of Israel, 
One of the things that made God mad is David wanted to count the army. He wanted to see how many fighting men he had, what kind of ammunition he had. And of course, God was saying, hey, if I'm going to fight this war for you, then you don't need your army anyway. I'm going to take care of the matter. Amen. Let's uh, read on. He says, so likewise, at verse 33, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Notice he says, forsake all that you have. In other words, if you're going to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're going to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, it is going to cost you everything you got. I think about the pilgrims when they came to America and some of the other settlers that came to America from England and from Europe. They knew that if they came to the New World, if they became part of what would become the 13 original American colonies, they knew it would cost them everything they had. They might have been millionaires over in Europe, but they would be living near the poverty level in this country. But they said it was a price they were more than willing to pay in order to gain the freedom to worship God as they chose. Of course, now some of them found that the idea of religious liberty was not as real at first as they thought it would be. Some of the colonies, for example, extended the right of the freedom of worship as long as you worship the way they did. But if you did not worship the way they did, you did not have the freedom to practice your belief. <laughs> so some of them found out the hard way they didn't have all the religious liberty they wanted even when they got here to the new world. Amen. Okay, now, let's read on. He says, salt is good, but if he have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears, let him hear. Let him hear. Amen. Amen. You know, salt is a wonderful thing. Uh, now, I, I'm one of these people, I have to be careful about my salt intake. Now, the reason I have to be careful about my salt intake is because of the fact that I have high blood pressure. In fact, I take uh, two pills a day for blood pressure. I take uh, one pill a day for cholesterol. And so I have to watch my salt intake, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. But we are told that salt tastes good, so it certainly adds flavor to a lot of foods. I find myself tempted to cook with salt, because frankly, I like food that tastes good, and salt makes food taste good. Amen? 
Amen. We also find that salt is a preservative. Salt is a preservative. Back in the old days, they would use salt to preserve meat and give it a longer shelf life. We also find that salt has medicinal powers. For example, if you've ever had a bad sore throat, and if you went to an old country doctor, especially back when doctors made house calls, guess what? If you had a bad sore throat, your doctor probably told you to get some warm salt water and gargle with it two or three times a day. In fact, one time I had a bad sore throat in college, and I had a school nurse that told me, she said, I'm going to give you some advice here. It's old-fashioned, but it works. She said, get you some warm salt water and gargle with that warm salt water every single day. And you might want to buy you some chloroseptic. And every time you gargle with warm salt water, follow up by spraying about five squirts of chloroseptic on the sore throat. And she said nine times out of ten, it's going to get better. Now, sometimes, she says, some people have a throat infection, in which case that treatment probably would not work. But salt has healing powers. If you've ever put salt on a wound, it may initially hurt, but it's also probably going to heal the wound because salt has healing qualities. And that's why salt is a good analogy for us to study as Christians. I think God puts us on this earth as salt of the earth so that we can preserve our society. I think here in this country, the United States, one of the reasons that God has withheld full judgment on this country is because of the fact that he knows there's some very dedicated Christians in this country. And it is for the sake of those Christians that God has not already utterly destroyed America. I think that God has put us on this earth to be healers. <laughs> to bring people hope and encouragement. Even on those messages where I have to preach about sin, I try to put as much hope and encouragement in that message as I possibly can. I remember one time... Uh, I was being considered as the interim pastor of a church. This particular church, they had two of us seminary students come on different Sundays and preach. And on one Sunday, they had a seminary student come and he preached about hell. And I came the next Sunday, and guess what? I preached about hell. They found it very ironic that both of us chose or felt led of the Lord to bring a sermon on hell. They said, the other preacher, though, because I'd asked him, I said, why did you choose me over the other guy? And I said, you know, don't be afraid, don't answer, because I don't even know the other guy. He doesn't know me, so, you know, <laughs> it's okay. 
And they said, well, the other guy preached on hell, and he felt like most of us were going there. He said, you preached on hell, but you put all that emphasis on the love of God and how it wasn't the will of God for any of us to go there. He said that made the difference as far as we were concerned. So I, whenever I preach, I always try to include as much hope as I possibly can in the message that the Lord gives me to preach. Well, if you have any Bible study questions or prayer requests, I would love to tackle those prayer requests and problems for you. Uh, simply send me an email and I'll be glad to answer your questions and and respond to your prayer requests. Most of all, I will pray over each and every prayer request. The best way to contact me is by email. It's also the fastest way to contact me. I have two email addresses. One is warrenlandis at yahoo.com and the other one is warrenlandis at gmail.com. And if you want to contact me by snail mail, the old-fashioned way, you could do that too. My snail mail address is Warren Landis, 80 Thruston Street. That's T-H-R-U-S-T-O-N, 80 Thruston Street, apartment 8510, Greenville, South Carolina, 29605. That's Warren Landis, 80 Thruston Street, apartment 8510, Greenville, South Carolina, 29605. And I'll be glad to hear from you. Well, that's all our time today. I've got a busy schedule today, and it was very tempting uh, for that reason not to even do the program today. But I felt like this was something that I needed to do uh, because it's all part of the work that God has given me to do on this earth. And so I look forward to that part of every morning when I come to this radio microphone and I bring to you the Word of God. Well, until next time, this is Warren Landis saying goodbye, God bless you, and guess what? I'm going to see you next time on Sunshine USA.